I'm A40 here. I hope you're ready to respect my rebrand. That's so important to me. Please, please, you you must respect me, or I'm just going to block you, or I'm just going to ban you. So, so please respect my rebrand. All right, I I have the right to my own delusions, and, and it's important to me that you mirror back to me this false self that I'm trying to project out to you. An article here in Bumble. Please respect Mia Khalifa's rebrand. So Mia Khalifa is a porn star, perhaps uh, best known for doing pornography while wearing a hijab. So on TikTok, the woman briefly known as Pornhub's number one performer is amassing a more supportive, more female fan base. Creeps and jerks will be blocked. So it seems like every few years, the media tell us about some ex-porn star who's coming along and who is totally taking charge of her sexuality. And she is rebranding and she's just turning it back on the porn industry and she's just going forward. So here's the article just came out today. Is this normal? Is this happiness? Social media superstar, right? Social media superstar Mia Khalifa asks, She's reflecting on her current state of mind while she waits for her berry lemonade, expressing disbelief at just how far she's come. I'm at peace. What is this? We're at the Mandolin, a Miami bistro. Khalifa suggested the spot. She, She was willing to drive three hours in traffic from her new home in the suburbs to get here. The house won her over with a large, quiet outdoor space that offers some much desired tranquility. There are peacocks all over the neighborhood. They wander into our yards. Six years ago, she left Miami. She swore she'd never come back. It's the city where she started her career and where her career started to ruin her life. So at age 21, fresh out of college, 2014, she moved to Miami because her then partner took a job there. So Khalifa got a job too at Fuddruckers, but her priority was getting breast implants. Considerable weight loss in her late teens left her self-conscious about her breasts. So she saved up and strategized for an augmentation throughout college. She reasoned that Beverly Hills was too expensive even for a short-term stay, but Miami struck the right compromise between affordability and caliber of surgeons. That practicality had guided her before. Khalifa was born in Lebanon, grew up in a D.C. suburb, went to the University of Texas at El Paso because it accepted the college-level credits she earned in high school, which allowed her to graduate sooner. Then she was approached by someone who offered her the opportunity to pose nude, and so she chose the name Mia Khalifa. And uh, she worked for Bang Bros, and they wanted to leverage her proximity to the Middle East. So they gave her an idea, and she responded, you mother effers are going to get me killed. So she she's willing to do the scene that she claims may get her killed, but she wants to blame other people. Right? If other people suggest that you do something that may get you killed, and you're an adult and you go along with it, that's on you. The adult industry is no stranger to media stunts and irreverence, but the exposure her video earned her was unprecedented. Uh, just the quality of her acting. Less than two months, her clip had garnered more than 1.5 million views. Who would have imagined that a beautiful porn star from Lebanon, like doing porn in, in a hijab and getting a lot of publicity about it, would get 1.5 million views? She was declared Pornhub's number one ranked performer. She began receiving death threats, Right. Pretty much everyone in public life receives death threats. She got international news coverage. Even ISIS got involved by reportedly hacking her 2 million follower Instagram account, which was subsequently deleted by Facebook. 
Mia Khalifa defended the scene as satire, telling the Washington Post there are Hollywood movies that depict Muslims in a much worse manner than any scene Bang Bros could produce. Then she quit porn. She tried to take conventional jobs like bookkeeper and paralegal. Though she cut and dyed her long, dark hair, co-workers and clients alike made it clear that they'd seen her on their screens. She says their behavior was so disruptive that one employer stopped letting customers into the office. She complains, I was made to feel ashamed about getting recognized in public when I was with someone who wasn't in the public eye. Today, her circumstances are different. She's just totally turned around, folks. Clear now 29. Is, uh, she's just doing great. Her new Instagram account has 28 million followers. I wonder how many of these are real. But this is outpaced by her following on TikTok, which at more than 32 million puts her in the top 50 of the app's most popular creators. She alone controls her social media. And she conceives the safe for work but spicy $12 per month OnlyFans account, right? Lots of lewd photos, but please respect her, her rebrand. She co-hosts a daily sports talk show. She designs a line of bikinis. And she recently signed a partnership with Playboy. But her personal success matters more to her than professional. I'm with someone I actually love. I'm more confident now. I have a personality. I was just so young and dumb and lost when I first lived here in, in Miami. Well, can, it can happen to the best of us. They are women who wanted to make it big in Hollywood. And they did. They are among the most popular new stars in porn. Well, now they talk about their fame, fortunes, and their very different hopes for the future in our Entertainment Tonight cover story. Devon found her way here from Allentown, Pennsylvania. I was a little nervous, you know, a little scared. I didn't know what to expect. Shyla came from Chicago. Never thought I would be here, but I have to say I wouldn't trade it for the world. Coral was a country girl from Alabama. What if my friends find out? What if my family finds out? Today, these three women are among the hottest stars in adult video. I completely acknowledge the fact that what I do is um, not so normal. Why do women perform sex on film? Money. Luke Ford is the author of A History of X, a new book on the industry. He says top actresses can make over $100,000 a year and lots more touring strip clubs. They're probably... Two or three girls who are making $500,000 a year. There are probably a dozen porn stars who are clearing over $200,000 a year. I can't believe that I could have such a great income and have so much fun. But all that fun and money comes with a price. Despite precautions, there is the threat of AIDS. It only takes one time. <laughs> it's a scary issue. Family and friends may... Yeah, that's kind of funny that uh, that... That's the supposedly the scariest thing that they they might get AIDS. I mean, what about social AIDS? You know, what about AIDS of the soul? What about all the other complications that come from doing porn? You may not be so enthusiastic about your job. Some of them were cool, and then some of them sort of didn't want to hang out with me, didn't want to be my friend so much anymore. But I guess I could expect that. There's so many people that can't possibly imagine that this is okay. It's a very tough business. It really grinds people down. It really is a job. It's work. Shyla, who's in college studying criminal justice, plans to quit in a year or two. My goal is to, you know, eventually be the best criminal attorney out there. But besides that, I'd like to be a judge someday. Come on, Jake. Good girl. So do you think she became an attorney, a criminal attorney, or a judge, or D, none of the above? 
Girl. <laughs> Coral wants to be a singer and settle in the mountains of Tennessee. Every other thing I'm doing is working for one thing and one thing only. Find my way out of L.A. <laughs> so do you think she became a singer? They may go, but new ones are certain to replace them, bringing with them big dreams. Right now I just want to be the biggest porn actress. I want to be the biggest star. Perfect. Luke Ford's book, A History of X, 100 Years of Sex and Film, will be in stores in March. And tomorrow on E.T., Leonardo DiCaprio is... Okay. So let's uh, let's go back to this Mia Khalifa article here on uh, Bustle.com. So Mia is restarting her career, guys, transitioning away from the demographic that had controlled her trajectory for so long, straight men. No, Mia Khalifa always controlled her trajectory. I'm growing as a woman. I hope you're growing as a man today. And I want to grow with other women. Are you growing with other men? The list of porn performers who have crossed over into mainstream fame is short. Yes, but every time it happens just a little bit, we get all these news stories about it. It's uh, Ginger Lynn. It's uh, Jenna Jameson. It's Tracy Lords crossing over. Number of female porn performers who pivoted to girls, girl influences can be counted on one hand. Wow, Mia Khalifa is a girl influencer. All of this was very accidental, she says humbly. I feel like I failed upwards. Khalifa's modesty belies her resiliency and the courage it took to show more of herself. So she's been forthcoming in podcasts and on social media about feeling exploited as an insecure young woman at work and in relationships. Right, so she's been very happy to broadcast about how other people have taken advantage of her how other people have used her, how other people have exploited her. Not a lot of introspection about how she used and exploited herself, right? She was an adult when she made these terrible decisions, but you're not going to get a lot of introspection from her about that. But you will get lots of talk about how other people took advantage of her. Few people can relate to telling the BBC their porn industry origin story. Yes, and it was all about how other people took advantage of her. Great news, Mia Khalifa now posts about everything from eating disorders. She's she's a girl girl influencer. Okay, so so please respect please respect uh, Mia Khalifa's rebrand, guys. And she talks about dissociative trauma, and she's found millions who empathize when she does. Authenticity is the main currency of social media, and Khalifa is more candid than some in-real-life friends will be. She's opened a new Instagram account. She's become active on YouTube and Twitch. She's remade her public persona as a jocular sports fan, talking to professional athletes on Twitter. So when she was working in the sports realm, her target demographic was young men. And that exposed her to yet another generous helping of what she calls toxic male energy. So what role did she play in creating this toxic male energy? Every appearance brought on a new wave of commentary from sports fans who wouldn't let her live down her past. Okay, so she's selling lewd photos of herself up to the present. Like She's marketing her sexuality, and she's shocked when people respond to what she's putting out into the world. So her personality is now better showcased on TikTok, where she combines humor and sincerity. 
where she pokes fun at her cosmetic surgery, depression, and the origins of her fame. My Instagram is maybe 25% women, she says, but TikTok is in the mid-40s. That's why it's such a safe and fun platform for me. There There are videos where my entire comment section is just women, and I can just sit there and go back and forth with them. Wow, that feels like what I've got going here. You know, there are times when my entire platform is just blokes, all right? And I feel like I can just go back and forth with the blokes. And it was the women of TikTok, guys, who inspired Mia Khalifa to start an OnlyFans account in September 2020. I mean, what a triumph of feminism. I had written it off for so long because I was insecure, right? She found that OnlyFans helped her to understand the difference between ethical and unethical porn. She shakes her head as she rebukes OnlyFans' willingness to abandon its core creators when it announced a short-lived intention to ban sexually explicit content. She remains disgusted by the company's complete disregard for the sex workers who built their platform. I mean, how callous of these you know, OnlyFans businessmen that they were, they were willing to turn their backs on those hard-working you know, suckers and screwers you know, willing to go all hardcore and, and only fans, right? The, the, the businessmen behind only fans, you know, they owned the, they owed the, the, the prostitutes and porn stars who performed explicit sex on their platform. You know, they owed them. All right. Can you believe that, that only fans was, was willing to treat with complete disrespect the, the sex workers who built their platform? I mean, you're probably as upset as I am. Look, Sunny Leone became a mainstream after a major porn career. She moved to India. Yeah, I remember Sunny Leone. No one in India questions her and her switch from porn to mainstream Bollywood, even though it's a very conservative culture compared to the West. So any good uh, links to Sunny Sunny Leone? Uh, Yes, I I remember her, interviewed her. Look, you are so good-looking. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, Roller Girl takes her revenge. <laughs> but but with these wrinkles comes uh, great wisdom. So great news is that Mia Khalifa travels around Airbnb, Airbnbs to help help others produce content for only for their respective only fans. And this ability to shoot and distribute their own lewd, nude and explicit images it, it's been profound. It's the difference between moral and immoral pornography. They are now free, guys, from the pressure of sleazy photographers. And that anxiety of knowing that somewhere on a hard drive are all the awkward possibly revealing in-between pose shots. Oh, don't you just hate that? But most important is how much fun they have. So Mia Khalifa posts on on OnlyFans just titillating without being explicit it's lewd but not nude and she'll block anyone if they say one thing that's annoying oh you go girl you take back your power and she'll block you anyone who even mounts the the slightest complaint she'll just block you i mean are you not excited about women taking back their powers she replies to her dms herself because third-party companies she tried out they were unable to replicate her take-no-shit style. Instead, they lapsed into flirtatious pandering. But she's not pandering to men. She's not pandering to straight men anymore. Her attitude is she doesn't need to make nice with a customer. 
you should read the fine print. It says, no nudity, respect the brand. Come on, guys, you got to respect the rebrand here. The ability to enforce these boundaries is still new for Mia Khalifa, who's faced enough harassment to last multiple lifetimes. Now it's girls who come up to me to tell me they love my TikToks. My anxiety was very bad. My depression and anxiety were a very bad combination. That's why I'm thankful for TikTok. It gave me a bridge to that female audience I never had a connection to. I didn't like myself. I was making choices and doing things that didn't really reflect who I was. So she got married to an old guy when she was in high school. And then she got married to someone early on around her entry into the porn industry. And uh, now she's dating some uh, famous singer. So th there's a happy ending here. So I just showed you a video with, with uh, Shyla Fox. Okay, Shyla Fox, she did not become an attorney. She's become an owner at Stress and Anger Management Institute, the SAMI group. So Stress and Anger Management Institute, LLC. It offers the most advanced stress management research, positive psychology, and cutting biofeedback technology to help you train and overcome any areas that may be holding you back or keeping you stuck at your current level of life experiences. The key to managing stress is understanding how to identify and transmute counterproductive situations and decision-making skills. Guys, to live a happy, healthy, or prosperous life, Charlotte Fox, a.k.a. Anutza Belisa, Bellissimo says we must focus our energy on that which will allow us to quickly, easily, and comfortably make all the necessary changes required to achieve our ultimate goals and delighted, desired lifestyle. The SEMI group aligns individuals with increased levels of communication, emotional intelligence, and stress management skills. It's a whole alternative to traditional therapy. It's all about e emotional fitness, EQ. Okay, it's the silent resilience factor that can make or break our personal and professional lives. Developing emotional intelligence enhances communication, productivity at work, and balance in our own life. Wow. So. Thank you, Dine. Thank and you, talk John. about a few things. Um, so tell me a little bit about your backstory. How did you get to, to be involved in stress and, and stress and anger management, right? That's so right. this one point leads to the other. Yeah. Um, so it's a natural exactly. Yeah. So tell me a little bit how you got to, to that, because obviously that's an interesting journey in stress, I guess. Well, I've been what we might call a serial entrepreneur my entire life. Yeah. Um, I, I don't, I think my first, how far back do you want to go, John? Um, <laughs> like my last, my first and last quote unquote job, you know, but all of my students are, you know, part of the job. But um, I would say that really an entrepreneur since 18, 19, yeah. and always love the idea of um, being in uh, freedom is important to me. So being in control of my schedule, being in control of my life. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how I began uh, working through the process of one business and experience leading to another. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it was really when in about the 1990s that yeah. I began uh, coaching before it was super popular. Okay. And yeah, before I everyone was... Back then when exactly. Yeah. <laughs> my cell phone was really big. It was like a block, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and so in around 1999 or so, 1998, I began um, life purpose and career consulting for executives and transition and employees uh, through large organizations that were being maybe laid off. And in fact, it was American Airlines who was having okay. a big layoff. And, and I began working with their employees and looking at how 
um, they were going to move forward and whether or not they were going to be continuing with the company and or if they wanted to. Wow, this is awesome, man. This sounds great. She doesn't really get into some of her prior entrepreneurial experiences, but uh, according to Boobpedia, so Shiloh Fox was born December 21, 1972, retired American porn star and adult model of Puerto Rican ancestry, notable for her thick natural curves, her huge breast implants, a penchant for dirty talk, a predilection for semen swallowing, and an unusual in the porn world ability to axe. All right, so she debuted at age 24 in the movie Gothic, enduring anal sex, double penetration, and multiple facials. She was soon given the lead role in volume 16 of the seminal series Taboo. And then who can forget her performance in amazing ass-to-mouth cum shots? I was surprised she didn't win an Oscar for that. And she was featured on Entertainment Tonight, focusing on girls in porn trying to go mainstream. And then she also starred in Too Too Much with Jasmine St. Clair. It was a breakthrough film because it featured high-profile porn stars engaging in raucous methods of intercourse, including the single orifice double penetration. Wow. And uh, she had an incredible work ethic. She said after one performance, I'm pretty sore. I'll take a lot of ice packs and warm towels to soothe my ass, but I'll be here to do it again in a month. And my goal is to be the best criminal attorney out there. But beside that, I'd like to be a judge someday. So please respect her rebrand. Right? Pe- people can, can rebrand. You, you can't just, uh, you can't just you know, put them, you know, pigeonhole them. And uh, now you can find, she's got a whole, and that's a Belisimo YouTube channel. Talk about anger management and how you too can uh, live live the life of your dreams. Pretty inspiring stuff. Jaden McNeil's his best friend, and then he says, "I'm going to destroy Jaden McNeil's federal agent. If you like him, if you promote him, I think you are doing something." So this is uh, Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Joker, talking about uh, Nick Fuentes is a federal agent. I've never heard Ken Brown say that about anyone else. Being wrong. Um, for yourself and also for others. I think it's very toxic. I think, you know, again, these are all relative statements. So, you know, four years ago, um, you know, you could compare Nick to the broader alt-right and say, okay, well, he was he's better because he is not a pure ethno-nationalist. He believes, like, you know, black people are can be allowed to stay in America. They don't have to be mass deported. Um, you know, he, he, he was, I guess, somewhat moderate on certain issues. And if you're a Christian, you could say, okay, well, um, he's not an atheist. He's not a pagan. He's a Christian. Uh, so there, there were different issues where you could say, okay, well, he's actually more moderate than the alt-right. And he's kind of moving the alt-right away from sort of purity spiraling. And, and that's a move toward a, a moderate vision. And so that's positive in some sense because people in the alt-right were just these out-and-out Hitler fans. But the problem is that Nick Fuentes is... is I mean, you want to talk about optics. The guy's talking about how he's Hitler. He's an incel. He's going after. He doesn't have any friends. He says Jaden McNeil's his best friend. And then he says, I'm going to destroy Jaden McNeil's life. So, <laughs> I mean, this is really bad. So so people like Shiloh Fox, uh, Nick Fuentes, Richard Spencer, uh, Mia Khalifa, they all chose the quick and easy fame that comes from being pornographic. Right, so Richard and Nick engage in political pornography, as as uh, Ken Brown was calling it. They're, they're going for the most, you know, visceral 
compelling, you know, back to blood approach to, to politics, which will always have an audience. Now, you'll generally attract an audience that is antisocial as th that approach is generally frowned upon, but you will compel, you know, a passionate following. And so another easy way to quickly get attention if you're a beautiful young female is to get naked and have sex. So when you appeal to the most visceral impulses, you get an intense reaction, but you may not like a lot of that reaction. And so then people like uh, Nick and Richard and Shyla and, and Mia, they all want to rebrand themselves. They want to use all the advantages of their fame, but rebrand it to create a happier, more comfortable life. But that's really, really hard to do. Like when you become best known for, for taking loads on your face, it's really hard to rebrand. And so whether you're you're Mia Khalifa who took a lot of loads literally on her face, or you're a Nick Fuentes or a Richard Spencer who's taken a lot of loads metaphorically uh, on their, their faces online through the, the crazy choices that they've made, it's kind of hard to rebrand and stand on your dignity, stand on your respectability, right? When you When you choose to go into the gutter, right? So Richard Spencer loved it when when people would hail Hitler him and when, when people would, would, you know, treat him like some, you know, Nazi leader, right? That, that, that gave him a tremendous charge when the, when the whole room would give him Heil Hitler salutes. Uh, Nick Fuentes can't stop uh, comparing himself to Hitler and, and Joseph Stalin, right? They get this, this primal charge out of uh, appealing to, you know, that, that perhaps a visceral primitive part of antisocial people. And so they loved that, that attention and that energy that they derived, but they don't like the negative consequences from these choices. And so they're very intent on rebranding into something more socially respectable, but they want to take all the energy and, and enthusiasm and following and money and fame that they gained by, by swimming in the sewer and, and try to make it respectable. I don't know. I mean, I guess I could get into these other points a little bit more. Maybe you're not convinced that someone who promotes um, a Fed op like January 6th and then continues to promote it and continues to promote it, maybe that's not enough evidence for you. I mean, I'll say this about APAC. Um, just to be brutal and clear, um, you know, Richard put on conferences, NPI, for years. And, you know, did they ever reach a thousand people? I'm not sure. You know, I don't know them. And Half Galician says... This guy's voice is too effeminate. Stand up, do a push-up, talk like a man. All right, you can you can mock Ken Brown for many things, but one thing he's not is toxic. I don't think he's he's dangerous. He's uh, seems fundamentally a pretty decent person. So I don't I don't detect uh, much that's dangerous about this guy. Right, he conducts things on a pretty high level, and uh, seems to conduct himself pretty honorably. The numbers on that, but I'm pretty sure they had hundreds of people. You know, and did they have, you know, sitting Congress people or sitting members of the government? No. But on the other hand, um, there there were no disavowals. Like there were people who went high. So back to this article on Bustle. Please respect Mia Khalifa's rebrand. And so I know Mia Khalifa did not write the headline, but it likely embodies her approach. Like, guys, come on, please respect my rebrand, which. Also feels a lot like what uh, Richard Spence is doing these days. Guys, please, please respect my rebrand. And we're talking Richard, Nick, Mia, the three people who are at war with reality. Now, there may be happy endings here. I'm not sure. 
I'd be much more confident of a happy ending when there's a lot less emphasis on trying to get other people to respect you, right? It's really hard to get other people, force other people to respect you when you've made money taking loads to the faith face, literally and metaphorically, right? You know, normal people don't like to take loads to their face, right? Most people don't like to get face blasted and throat fucked, all right? And most people who've endured the humiliation of a Richard Spencer or Nick Fuentes, you know, they'd have a hard time keeping going. But uh, sometimes you can try to rebrand. Now, important point. I don't know the real Mia Khalifa. I don't know the real Nick Fuentes. I don't know the real Richard Spencer. I'm only reacting to the public self that they put out there. And so I noticed with a lot of internet blood sports, it's all about, you know, cutting people down. And I don't know the real person. I'm just reacting to their public persona. Now, one thing I think that uh, Mia Khalifa, Richard Spencer, Nick Fuentes have in common is that it seems like their focus is on changing reality rather than adjusting to reality. They desperately want to push people to respect them and to respect their rebrand. And not nearly as much attention is paid to adjusting to reality. So how does one adjust to reality? Well, think about how has my selfishness hurt the lives of people around me? So I don't hear much introspection from Mia or from Nick or from Richard about ways that their selfishness has been devastating to people around them. Think about people who've been kind and good to you and who have felt let down by you. That kind of sobering thought brings one right back into reality and lets one let go of being at war with reality. So as you know, I'm a big fan of the 12-step approach, and part of that approach is we're no longer fighting anyone or anything. It's such a relief when I start trying to get people to respect me. So saying, please respect my boundaries, it's like saying, please respect my rebrand. It's like saying, you know, please tell me about yourself. It sounds very innocuous, but you're giving people orders. All of those are orders. People don't like to be given orders, particularly not from people you know, who've been face blasted for, for money, right? You're telling someone to do something. It's not going to work. It's not a winning formula to be at war with reality. Like if you learn to respect yourself, other people will too. The best movie on this is Weatherman starring Nicolas Cage about a weatherman in Chicago and other people just constantly like throwing milkshakes and abusing him. But he took up archery, learned to respect himself, and that affected how other people reacted to him. So Asking the world to change, to accommodate you, it's not going to work. Now, all these people, Mia, Nick, Richard, they're all smarter than I am. They're all incredibly talented. Uh, Right now, they're they're going through some delusions. But you'll know when they've come to some inner peace and some ease with themselves when they're less at war with reality. They're less concerned with how you regard them and uh, more concerned with how they regard themselves when they learn to give themselves that that acceptance that they so desperately want from other people, right? You want other people to accept your rebrand. You want other people to accept your boundaries. Well, do you accept your rebrand? Are you at peace with yourself? Profile people, uh, you know, you could say Jared or Guillaume or, or, you know, you could throw out different names there of high profile people. There was no line. There was no deception. There was no disavowals. Whereas, you know, you've got the people who go like MTG or Gosar who go, to this act pack. And then afterwards they're like, no, 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 I disavow. I don't agree with any of that. 
and the content of what's being said, I mean, it's understandable why they would back away because it's billed as this America first conservative thing. And then what you end up is getting Putin first, Russia first. Um, Putin is Hitler, but that's cool. Uh, that is the kind of rhetoric that, and that's not how it's billed. And so there is a kind of a bait and switch that's going on. Um, yeah, I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think, I think the thing is imploding. I think it's a cult. I think, um, you know, we've seen this before. We've seen the rise and the fall of the alt-right. We, we saw the rise of America first. I think we're seeing the fall of America first. Um, the time to jump off this whole train was four years ago. You know, when, when I, I mean, I came up with the term minoritarian five years ago now, um, you know, and that was my response to this whole thing. Um, Cause I said, well, there's this libertarian to alt-right pipeline. Um, you know, people need an exit path. For a lot of people, that was America first. I said, no, 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 America first, that's populism. That's not gonna work. We need minoritarianism, made the arguments for that. Um, so that really the right time to get off this train was five years ago. Um, you know, it's five years kind of too late, but better late than never. Like people who are continuing to stick with this, people who are continuing to argue for this, people who are trying to make marginal improvements around the edges. Oh, this is just kind of a, this is just like a, oh, it's just like a personality conflict or, or we can reform this or we'll just do it a little bit better. I mean, just to give you a little prognosis and prediction, I think that um, there's basically in the same way that America First was originally billed as a big tent, which in some ways it still is, you know, it's got Milo and, Laura Loomer and Michelle Malkin and Bryson Gray and all these people, Kanye West fans. It, it, it does kind of have a weird big tent, um, but at the same time has become a bit of a cult. But initially it was to say, okay, well, we're not pure ethnostatists. We're not pure like neo-Nazis. We're not pure like anti-Christian pagans. Like we're going to be broad. We're going to be inclusive in some sense. And, uh, you know, anyone could be America first. And, and so it was really billed implicitly as an anti-Spencer group. It was a response to Richard's alt-right. Okay, we're not doing that. We're going to have America first. And I think what we're going to see happen in 2023 is a coalescing of an anti-Nick post-America first thing. I, I don't know if it's still going to Okay, so there's a, a terrific documentary on Amazon about the rise of the warrior apes. And you see the status hierarchy constantly changing. So... There's this conventional wisdom from many spiritual people that you should not compare yourself to others. And that's simply anti-human and anti-reality. We need to compare ourselves to other people for information, for connection, for inspiration, right? We need to connect for a sense of reality, right? There's no alternative but to compare yourself to others, but... You can compare yourself to others and be dragged down by it. So I can be doing a live stream right now, and Nick Fuentes might be out doing live stream at the same time, getting 8,000 live viewers. So I can take that information. I, I, can, I can even study it. So what is Nick doing to get 8,000 live viewers? What, what's his, his formula? I can uh, use, use comparison to, say, connect to other live streamers who I respect, and I can you know, get a sense of reality, like, oh, I'm putting some effort into this stream. Like, why am I putting so much effort for a stream that, say, may only get uh, watched by 100 people while Nick Fuentes may do a stream that gets watched by 20,000 people, right? So there's reality. Wow. Thank you so much, Curious Gazelle, for the super chat and, and for, the, for the retweets. And thank you and for the inspiration and the, the prompts. 
for for discussion topics that you've given to me over, over the years now. Okay, read out all my comments now. Okay, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling, I'm scrolling. Okay, let's go to the beginning here. Look, show your audience Sonny Leone's relaunch as a Bollywood star in 2014 with the song Baby Doll. The problem is I'll probably get a, a copyright strike if I show that, that song. So I'm happy to show things that would not get me a copyright strike. Okay, so Sonny Leone also does stand-up comedy for Amazon Prime India now on 69. I cannot believe Indians have accepted this woman and uh, respect her. Look, there's an Islamic scholar in the United Kingdom who's popular online, calls himself Mufti Abu Lay, who was caught up with pornography. Yeah, you never get to graduate from being a man, right? To be a man is to be vulnerable to the lures of pornography and to being vulnerable to the lures of attention and, and recognition and appreciation. Right? I, I, if I'm spiritually centered... And I get a little bit of attention, recognition, appreciation. I don't get intoxicated from it. But if I'm having a hard day, I'm off my spiritual center. I'm, I'm not, not well aligned. I'm, I'm feeling sorry for myself. And then I get a little bit of attention and appreciation. Then I get intoxicated by it. And so ideally, appreciation, attention, it kind of blows through you like a, a warm, warm breeze. But when you're needy, and, and the attention and appreciation just, you know, intoxicates you, okay, then that's dangerous because you'll, you'll love that hit so much, you'll keep coming back and you'll keep tapping, tapping the source of that hit of appreciation and you'll get into a ton of trouble. So men by nature are also highly hierarchical. They're always trying to find ways that they're better than others. They're always you know, looking for opportunities to lead out, to you know, assert themselves vis-a-vis -vis other guys to you know, attract female attention, to become a leader among men, and to be desired by women. This is just bought, built into our genetic nature. But how we express that and how powerful it is over us and if it intoxicates us and leads us down a destructive path, right? there, there we can do some things so that uh, these, these basic primal desires either lead us off course or they provide fuel they provide the energy and the strength that we need to do something that is socially useful rather than something that is antisocial. Curious Gazelle has the pimp hand in this chat now. <laughs> Luke falls off the fap wagon every other day. No, bro. No, bro. No fap. God, strike me down if I have fapped since June of 2013. So we are coming up on nine years, no fap. Like, I should be... I should be going around speaking in mosques, churches, and uh, yeshivot about uh, about <laughs> the the path of mastery. Okay, so keep your hands where I can see them. So I started blogging in June, July third, nineteen ninety seven. Within an hour of getting home with my first real computer, my first real PC. I started blogging on, on AOL, and as I started writing about dark stories such as 
I made my name reporting on an HIV outbreak in the pornography industry. And it seemed like every month or two, some new porn star would, would test positive with HIV. And then I eventually tracked down the person who was most likely to have been patient zero, Mark Goldberg Wallace. And, and that ended that particular pandemic, which went from about 1995 to 1999. But when I was going out there and researching and reporting on this very dark story, I got a lot of the following comment. When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes into you. If you stare into the abyss, 40, the abyss will stare right back at you. And this is a quote from Nietzsche. It's a kind of an impressive comment, right? It really takes you aback. And I have to admit that when I, when I was blogging and I was blogging for a living and I was getting a lot of pushback and death threats from the industry and getting knocked around and I wasn't just the innocent aggrieved party. I made some reckless mistakes. I was sometimes mean, uh, sometimes unfair. I was frequently self-aggrandizing and reckless, right? I, I sometimes treated other people carelessly and I unnecessarily hurt other people and they reacted. So I was the primary cause of my own misery. But in, in all that contention that, that I was a part of for the approximate 10 years that I was blogging about the porn industry, I, I sometimes felt like I was just losing it. I remember there was one evening where I even like looked up online uh, zoological material. Let's just leave it there. We're a very ele elevated audience. I, I don't want to go into more more details than that. But but suddenly, for the first time in my life, I had an interest in zoology. And, and I remember thinking, "Wow, I've really hit bottom this time." And so, I sometimes thought, "Wow, I am gazing into the abyss. Maybe the." the abyss is gazing back, back into me. And, you know, maybe I've got a problem and, and maybe, maybe Nietzsche is right. When you gaze into the abyss, the, the abyss gazes back into you. But then I realize why do people like 40, you know, spend so much time gazing into the abyss? You know, why do people like Nick Fuentes or Mia Khalifa or Richard Spencer or Mike Enoch or Eric Stryker, why, why do we spend so much time staring into the abyss? And it's because that's where we get our sense of importance. Right? Oh, no, I'm the tough guy. I can, I can look evil straight in the eye. You know, I'm the, I'm the real man. I can, you know, I can go do, do battle with, with the devil. So it's kind of prompted toward these thoughts by a thread on Steve Saylor's blog about uh, Nick Cave's model actor's son, Jethro Lazenby, uh, just recently died. So Nick Cave, the, the singer and the actor, has four kids. Now two of the four have died. And so there was a comment on Steve Saylor's blog. Notice how many of these singers who, who specialize in darkness, that uh, they're not really able to have a stable existence and they able to successfully raise stable children. Like Janis Joplin, Billie Holiday, Nico, Amy Winehouse. This staring into the abyss seems to damage girls even more than guys. But uh, certainly guys who make their name staring into the abyss, they have a great deal of trouble as well. Whoa, another super chat from Curious Gazelle. Thank you for being you. Wow. 
Thank you. That line about the abyss was made famous in the movie Wall Street. Actor Howell Holbrook says it to Charlie Sheen. Luke's got one hand on the helm. Thank you, Elliot Platt. <laughs> I, I appreciate that. So Nick Cave, two of his kids have died. And so it just makes you think about those public performers. Manson, who's that That singer, Manson, uh, who, who specialize in darkness. They seem to get into a lot of, lot of trouble. So... This Jethro Lazenby, his mother was a model, Australian model, Bo Lazenby. And this isn't the, the first kid of, of Nick Cave, who ended up dead at an ungodly early age. So this Lazenby was jailed in 2018 for a number of violent attacks on his then-girlfriend. More recently, he physically attacked his mother in March, found guilty of unlawful assault. He was diagnosed with uh, schizophrenia. Is released from Melbourne Remand Center last Thursday on the condition he undergo drug counseling, ordered to stay away from his mother for two years. 2015, Nick Cave's son Arthur died at age 15 after falling off a 60-foot cliff. The teen was high on LSD at the time. Nick Cave wrote about Arthur's passing in a letter to a fan who had experienced similar losses. It seems to me that if we love, we grieve. That's the deal. That's the pact. Grief and love are forever intertwined. Grief is a terrible reminder of the depths of our love. Like love, grief is non-negotiable. So I have thought a lot about this idea that when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares into you. And then as I get older, I realize we stare into the abyss for a reason because it serves us. Right? It gives us a feeling of importance. It gives us a feeling that we are the, the, the brave ones. It uh, may be a source of income and prestige and uh, status for us that, you know, we're willing to look into the darkness that we're willing to, you know, wrestle, wrestle with the devil. But what type of person spends a lot of time staring into the abyss? Someone who's not normal doesn't have normal levels of human connection. If you're a normal person with a family, you prefer, instead of staring into the abyss, you prefer to stare into the eyes of your spouse. You prefer to stare into the eyes of your children. You prefer to stare into the eyes of your friends and extended family and community. Right? That's where a normal person spends his time. So what kind of person spends a great deal of his time staring into the abyss? Like a Mia Khalifa, a Luke Ford, a Richard Spencer, a, a Nick Fuentes, a Mike Enoch, an Eric Stryker. Right? You know, we are people who have not had normal levels of human connection. And so when you don't have that normal level of human connection, you are then desperate, desperate, desperate for meaning. And out of that desperation for meaning, you go in some strange directions. There's a story in the Talmud about this. It's called Pardes, right? It's a legend about four rabbis of the Mishnaic period. So in the first century of the common era, who visited Pardes. That's the orchard of esoteric Torah knowledge, and only one of the four succeeds in leaving the orchard unharmed. So four entered the Pardes, Rabbi Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, another Acre, and Rabbi Akiva. So one looked into the esoteric, looked into the abyss and died. One looked and went mad. One looked and became an apostate. And then one entered in peace and departed in peace. So it's not necessary that if you look into the abyss that you become deranged. But 
the type of people who are most attracted to the abyss tend to be deeply disturbed, right? There's a reason someone's staring into the abyss, whether it's Luke Ford for much of his life or a Nick Fuentes or a Richard Spencer or a Mia Khalifa or any porn star, right? People, some people who are not normal, who don't have normal levels of human connection, they are attracted to the abyss. The abyss is serving them because it is a reflection of the darkness they find inside of them. So it's not so much staring into the abyss and the abyss then stares into you. No, there's an abyss inside of you that then leads you to go looking for the abyss. It's like when I was uh, two occasions at about age seven when I was lighting fires, right? I was trying to take what was going on inside of me and transfer it to the outside world. I wanted the outside world to be as burned up and desolate and dangerous as I felt inside. So here's a version in the Babylonian Talmud, which is probably the best-known version of this legend of Pades. So four entered the orchard, Ben Azai, Ben Zoma, Acher, and Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva says that when you come to the place of pure marble stones, do not say, water, water, for it is said, he who speaks untruths shall not stand before my eyes. Ben Azai gazed and died. Regarding him, the verse states, precious in the eyes of God is the death of his pious ones. Ben Zoma gazed and was harmed, meaning it went mad. Regarding him, the verse states, Did you find honey? Eat only as much as you need, lest you be overfilled and vomit it. Then Acher cut down the plantings, became an apostate. Rabbi Akiva entered in peace and left in peace. So yes, if you come in peace to read you know, Mein Kampf or the Turner Diaries or you know, some other dangerous thought, you're going to read the book in peace and you're going to leave in peace. But if you have some inner darkness that you're seeking to get replicated outside in the world, you will find the darkness in literature or in podcasts or in YouTube videos that you so desperately seek. It's going to be called America first. I don't know if it's going to be called um, American populism. There's some, something American populist movement. I don't know. John, you've got people like John Doyle has a big audience. Seems like a, again, I disagree with all these people politically, but he seems like he's smarter than Nick. He seems more well put together. Relatively speaking, you've got people like Jaden, you've got this Simon guy, you've got um, who, who else? Who else is willing to jump aboard the anti-Nick train? Um, I, I don't, I don't know the rest of the cast. Mr. Medicker was a fairly large audience, um, you know. So you have a group of people who seem to have competence, experience. They seem to hate Nick. They seem to want to move in a more moderate uh, direction where they can kind of reconcile with figures like Charlie Kirk rather than steaming forward with the Hitler jokes. Um, which again, the thing about Richard is, is he did this hail Trump speech and everyone's, oh, that's bad optics, bad optics that you can't do that. You know, Richard never said any, he has never said anything. You, you can't find any, I mean, maybe what private tape will cover, but you can't find any tape at, at all public or private that I know of where, where he says, uh, yeah, Hitler is a great guy. He's awesome. I love him. You're not going to find that because even though I think, you know, Richard probably does think that, uh, he understands that. You know, that that it, 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 I don't know how to communicate this exactly, but instead of just coming out and saying that, the implication is enough, right? The implication is enough. You don't need to come out and say that because if you come out and say that, really, you're not gaining any support. You're not gaining any energy. Or moment. Like, no one's coming to you. There, no, no one is like, oh, well, I would have supported you, but you didn't explicitly say you're a neo-Nazi. No one is really saying that. So keeping it implicit as a, like, political strategy, a Machiavellian, right, it makes sense. It makes sense why you would do everything up to actually 
like signing the dotted line. And so Nick is just, he's, he's out there and he's making these jokes and people can say it's just jokes and it's just irony. But let's repeat that sentence again. It's just jokes. It's just irony. It is not a serious political movement. And so why is he trying to dox people? Why is he trying to ruin people's lives? Okay, so the irony bros a response to online deplatforming and social opprobrium and ostracism that happened when the alt-right went off the rails with Hellgate and, and Charlottesville. So, so humor and irony are sometimes an adaptive response. They're sometimes a, a pretty good approach. Now, other times it becomes maladaptive. There's no one approach, whether it's being unironic or ironic. There's no one approach that always works. Having a look at the chat. Look, can you play Richard Spencer debating Mark Collette on the distant right? Yeah, I played that a day or two ago. E. Michael Jones says that the Supreme Court leak on abortion is ethnic warfare. <laughs> that Mike Enoch put all his eggs in the basket of people who talk about physiognomy is real all the time is the eighth weirdest thing about him. Chat says, isn't the Australian equivalent of redneck white trash basically the term bogan? Yes. Was I white trash? I don't think so. I remember when I moved to Auburn, California, which is about 40 minutes drive north of Sacramento. That's the first time I ever heard the term white trash. So I grew up on college campuses. So I don't ever remember hearing the term white trash until I was 14, moved to Auburn, California. And it was in the foothills and people were often moving there to get away, God forbid, from, from black people. Okay, let's get a little bit of Tucker Carlson. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. So if you're the White House press secretary, and thank God you're not, but if you were, you would have two tasks every day. You got to learn the president's views on what's happening in the world. So you can repeat them. And then you've got to try to remember the names of those weird looking people sitting in the folding chairs in the briefing room. So it's not an easy job, but it's not a very rewarding one either. You're not making policy. You're not making decisions. You're repeating the party line. Under normal circumstances, it takes a lot more creativity to say sell lipstick for L'Oreal than it does to be White House press secretary. They're all worn out by the end. Except under Joe Biden, it's a totally different job under Joe Biden. The rules have changed. If you're Joe Biden's press secretary, you've got to be able to think on the fly because your boss can't. So every time Biden goes outside, you're going to be called upon to translate what he said or explain what he really meant, assuming for the sake of argument that he really meant anything at all. I know you're frustrated, Biden said today, for example. I can taste it. What does frustration taste like? An earthy, slightly unctuous blend of bacon notes, mango and raspberry with an undertone of saddle leather? Maybe. Joe Biden didn't say. The White House press secretary would know. That's her job. Or to name another example, which United States senators represent the state of Florida and which represent the state of Wisconsin, which is not near Florida? Well, the press secretary would have to know that, too, in case Biden screws it up, as, of course, he just did today, etc. So it's not an easy gig. And it's a particularly tough job when the topics are serious, like nuclear war. A few weeks ago, Joe Biden pledged to overthrow the government of Russia, which is fully capable of waging nuclear war, possessing, as it does, at least 6,000 nuclear warheads. That's not a small thing, starting a global... Okay, so Tucker Carlson is another form of political pornography, right? He's another form of hate porn, 
and a little bit of heat porn can add spice and excitement and color to your life. It can, you know, get the blood flowing. It can provide passion for, for the troops. It can you know, perhaps uh, energize your side, right? So a little bit of hate porn can have a healthy role to play in many people's lives. Other people are better off with zero hate porn in their life. And too much hate porn, however, will derange you. So any group identity quickly takes on characteristics of a cult. We have to be both in a group and then stand outside the group and understand how what we're saying and doing and behaving, how that then looks to outsiders so that we can have some perspective. So it's you know very appealing to hear about how our in-group is being persecuted, how we're being screwed over, and how we need to unite against the people who are just you know, those elites are just putting putting their foot on, on our neck. And that certainly feels good. And it's certainly the path to being a successful pundit. It's also hate porn. And that more than a little bit is bad for you. And some people can't ten, handle any. So what type of person can't really benefit from any level of hate porn? Those who are already disconnected. And right? if you have a desperate need for meaning in your life, the smallest amount of hate porn may well become intoxicating. And the problem is not with the hate porn itself. The problem is your desperate need for meaning has made you unstable and reactive and explosive and you could you could fire off in, in any of uh, 12 different you know random directions in your desperate need for meaning now if you have family you have friends if you're connected with other people and uh, you know a small amount of uh, hate porn is not going to do any harm like a small amount of in-group identity with you know, a grievance against outgroups who are enemies of your in-group, you know, a small to moderate amount of that provides you with stronger, clearer identity, provides you with more clarity in life. It connects you more to members of your in-group. So some of, of that, uh, some of that burn against outgroups can serve you. But once that, that burn becomes too hot, once, once your outgroup antipathy becomes too intense, then what was adaptive becomes maladaptive. So come on, guys, you gotta gotta have your your hate porn just in judicious quantity. So that's why I'm only giving you a couple of minutes because I know some of you can't handle more than two minutes of uncensored, explicit hate porn. Right? You may just have to limit your consumption of the hate porn to weekends. Right? We need to we need to understand that for everything there is a season and a time under under heaven. So what does this quote mean? When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. I, I just felt like uh, Googling that. And luckily there's Quora, Q-U-O-R-A. And the, the top response is, the answer is in the first part of Nietzsche's original quote, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will then gaze back into you. So fighting evil has a tendency to turn us evil. Key part of this is the end justifies the means. We believe polluters are killing the planet, so we decide to commit violence against them and that that is justified. Eventually you may feel that murder is justified or abortionists are murdering babies, so we decide violence against them is justified. Eventually we feel murder is justified. So if we stare into the abyss of pollution or abortion or whatever we hate because we see it as evil and maybe it really is evil and eventually the abyss stands back hypnotizing us, becoming just as evil as what we hate or more so. Now, this is only true if you're unstable, right? Normal people don't hang out staring at the abyss. 
So this concern about staring into the abyss and the abyss staring back into you, it's mistaking the symptom for the problem, right? Staring into the abyss is not the problem. Spending a long time staring into the abyss is a symptom that you have an abyss inside of you, right? It's a symptom that you are not ease, at ease with yourself, with the universe, with other people, that you are not functioning in a productive, harmonious way with other members of your community. And therefore, because your real life is a failure, you're, you're burning up inside and you want a distraction. And so you feel an attraction to staring into the abyss. So there's a classic example in literature, Captain Ahab of Moby Dick. He stares into the abyss of his anger at a whale who has chomped off his leg. Of course, the whale isn't really evil because Ahab was hunting that whale and the whale was just fighting for his life. So one of the advantages of 12-step programs that I've experienced is the, the idea that we're no longer fighting anyone or anything. Like People would wonder, like, who are you so mad at, Luke? Because I kind of went through life with this big chip on my shoulders. Like I was all ready to go into war, you know, ready to go into war on my blog, on my vlog, you know, just o always looking for a feud to stoke the feud to, to you know, always, you know, hammer and tongs, right? That, that was my approach. And other people say, hey, I, you know, I'm just trying to make a living 40. And I'm just trying to enjoy my life. And, and, you know, you're always trying to stir things up. So Ahab stared into the abyss of his hatred for the whale and his desire for revenge. The abyss stared back at him, hypnotizing him into irrational rage, and he destroyed his own life, the life of all but one of his shipmates and his ship, leaving only a coffin that the lone survivor used as a life rast. Then another example in fiction is Daenerys Targaryen of the Game of Thrones. So based on the TV series, Daenerys starts out on a mission to stamp out slavery, make life better for the poor, which is wonderful, right? But she stared into the abyss of righting wrongs. The abyss stared back, hypnotizing her into becoming an evil tyrant herself. Till finally an agent of good who loved her reluctantly made the world a better place by killing her. All right, just a little bit more of hate porn. Not too much, guys. Well, conflagration and ending human life on the planet. So it fell to the press secretary to clean it up. We are not advocating for killing the leader of a foreign country or regime change, Jen Psaki explained, despite the fact that Joe Biden had just advocated for regime change in Russia. So it's a lot of power. How did somebody like Jen Psaki, someone so demonstrably talentless, a humorless gender studies major from Greenwich, how did this person get this much authority in our government? Good question. Nowadays, it just comes with the job of press secretary. Just hours ago, Psaki explained that federal law no longer applies to mobs of Biden voters. They get to intimidate all the Supreme Court justices they want as long as they're on the right side of abortion. And we're quoting now. We certainly continue to encourage protests outside. This is crazy. The Biden administration supporting protests outside the homes of Supreme Court justices. Judges home, she said, and in so saying, reversed hundreds of years of policy and tradition and took yet another blow against civilization and decency. She could do that because she's the press secretary. She's Jen Psaki. Or was, next week she's headed to MSNBC for a new life as a cable news contributor. Wish her luck, of course. Good luck, Jen Psaki. But in the meantime, you've got to wonder who's going to replace her. Who could replace her? Is anyone qualified? Is there another person in this country as shallow, nasty, and partisan as Jen Psaki is? Well, there is. Her name is Corinne Jean-Pierre. 
Listen to Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki, describe Karine Jean-Pierre. First, as you all know, she will be the first black woman, uh, the first out LGBTQ plus person to serve in this role. The first black woman and out gay person to speak for the president. Becoming the first black woman and LGBTQ person. The first black woman, first openly gay person. The first black woman, the first openly gay person. The first black person, first openly gay person. Becoming the first black person and first openly LGBTQ person to serve as White House press secretary. Well, you heard it from Jen Psaki. She's going to be the first, quote, out LGBTQ plus person to be White House press secretary. And thank God. But before you light a candle and begin tonight's celebrations, a quick question. What does LGBTQ plus mean? Hey, Jen Psaki, let us know if you have a minute. Explain every letter in that acronym and specifically what it signifies. Well, wait, don't hold your breath. She's not going to do it because, like everybody else who uses that phrase, Jen Psaki literally has no idea, no clue at all what it means. It's one of those terms you're not supposed to define. When okay, that's all the hate porn you get for now. Let's let's talk about something serious. If uh, Jews are going to patronize prostitutes, is it better that they patronize Jewish prostitutes? Let's get a little Mark Shapiro this, here. Uh, comments of the Akena Sitzchak. You had uh, communities in Spain at least one community, but I recall it was more than one, where you had a problem because the men were going to the non-Jewish prostitutes and uh, and that, uh, they, uh, that could be the death penalty and it created all sorts of problems. So you had this community that established, the rabbi agreed to it too, that uh, you establish a, for lack of a better word, a whorehouse, a Jewish whorehouse, the, the prostitutes go to the mikvah, everything is fine and that lessens the sin. And uh, the Akhenes Sitzak there said that even to raise this as an issue and there was... A, at least in that community, the, under rabbinic guidance, they thought that that was okay. He said that this is the biggest disgrace of it all, because uh, when you deal with matters like this, you're not looking at what technically is more of a prohibition or less of a prohibition. The very fact that the community itself would um, would uh, give justice, it would justify this practice and make it official and uh, and arrange it, that gives it the imprimatur of the community. So I would say the same thing to Rabbi Dachowski. And by the way, he's, if, he, if he was a Haredi, I get it because what does he care what, uh, you know, if, this, if the state of Israel was violating it, you know, that to him doesn't have, wouldn't have such a meaning, but he's actually a Zionist, Rabbi Dachowski. I have a letter of his, uh, which I found in the archive. And uh, Laponia says, if anyone else spoke the way that this guy does, mixing up two languages, they would be considered insane and stupid. No, he's speaking to a particular, uh, particular audience who is literate in both languages. So Mark Shapiro did his uh, PhD in Jewish thought at uh, Harvard University. In which he affirms that he's a Mizrahi, right? So I would think I'm a little... So Haredi means non-Zionist, traditional Orthodox Jew. Mizrahi means modern Orthodox and Zionist. Man, Google's trying to kick me out of the call. Bloody hell, guys. Kind of do get a break. Surprised that he doesn't see the problem with the, the city, the municipality itself, having a system where uh, there's Chil Shabbos. But I, I encourage anyone who's interested to look at the, the tshuva, that he, the article he has. Um, if I go to a strip club, should I insist the girl go to a mikvah before a lap dance? I think you should ask your, your rabbi.
right? You, you need to ask a major league Rob and, and get, get a response from someone who's learned in Toyota. Now we're going to come back to the Hassan Sofer, Ramosha Sofer uh, Schreiber, when we look at his view of emancipation. When we get to a next generation, one of the big issues here is emancipation and do we accept it? Do we want to be part of this new world? Because the reform argument is that the, the traditionalist Jews, uh, they're Jews of the ghetto, they're Jews of the past. If you want to be a modern person, you need to be, uh, you need to come in our direction. And it's uh, Rav Shamshim Rafael Hirsch is going to provide the greatest response to this, that no, you can be a 100% traditional Jew and also take part in the world, everything that's on there. But the, the Moshe Sofer, as we'll see, provides, and he's not unique in this, as many of you felt the same way, the justification, Dafka for the reform argument, that uh, the traditional Jews only want to remain in the ghetto. And uh, there's no question, as we shall see further as we move on, how he's a pivotal figure. He did a great deal in holding back the danger of reform. He gave sustenance to um, the traditionalists. But his approach, by the time you get to the mid-19th century, his approach is not going to be helpful in uh, pushing back the tide of reform because the traditional Jews are not going to want to live in the ghetto. We're going to see what the Hasan Sofer actually says. And as the 19th century goes on, you need a new approach. Uh, and it's very interesting when you read the Chassam Sofer, he has, I don't know what you call it, a certain, even though he lives into the third decade of the uh, 19th century, a certain naivete that works fine in the ghetto, but uh, the idea that this would work outside the ghetto among more westernized Jews, um, it just, it wasn't going... So rabbis... The, the traditional rabbis liked it when Jews were confined to the ghetto because that way they'd be less likely to uh, sleep with non-Jews, less likely to assimilate. And also the rabbis would have more power. So Jews did not have much influence on wider society. They did not make many contributions to science, to the social sciences, to the humanities, to Gentile culture uh, prior to the 19th century. But with emancipation in the 19th century, Jews left the ghetto and when they did that, the, the power of the rabbis was considerably diminished. In, in America, for example, rabbis have far less power. They only have the power of persuasion compared to the real-life power that they had to control people back in the old country in Europe. Going to work. And I, I believe maybe the Hasbro Sofer is just fine with having his 10% or even less committed Jews. But this wasn't able to, when you do it. Right. So many of the traditional Orthodox rabbis, they, they'd rather have you know, 10% of the current number of Jews, but committed to Judaism rather than wishy-washy Jews. So when Napoleon invaded Russia, the traditional Jews, the traditional rabbis prayed for the victory of the Tsar because that way Jews could stay in the in the shtetl, in, in the pale, in the ghetto, while the more modern Jews prayed for the victory of Napoleon because they believed that he would emancipate them with a place like Germany, where everyone is now speaking German and uh, wants to be a professional, and uh, the, the, the approach of the Hassan Sofer uh, just wouldn't work. Uh, and even the Hassan Sofer, in many ways, he's still, he, he, he still has the pre-modern mentality, even though he's living well into the 19th century. So, for example, just to give you some examples, which shows the things that were never been able to have been said by Rav uh, Shamshin Raphael Hirsch and Israel Hildesheim. So Shimshin Raphael Hirsch and Israel Hildesheim, they develop modern Orthodox Judaism. So modern Orthodox Jews, by and large, they look and act like non-Jews, except for when it comes to specific religious obligations, such as 
uh, keeping the Sabbath and keeping the Jewish holy days. Member of Nasnadwar of London uh, to be distinguished from the, the teacher of the Hasim Sofer that who were taught, who were modern Rabbani with modern educations. All of them had doctor. Uh, the two of them had doctorates. And Nasnadwar, I think, had the first doctorate of in um, in um, modern times. So Judaism in America has largely been a three-generation phenomenon. The Jews who came from Europe were Orthodox. Their, their children became conservative. Their children became reform, and their children assimilated. And it's fairly similar to Seventh-day Adventism. Seventh-day Adventism is also a three-generation phenomenon. I was raised a Seventh-day Adventist. So the first generation of Seventh-day Adventists tend to be Fabrenta, enthusiastic and traditionalist and very much embracing the church's distinctive teachings about how we're living in the time of the end and there'll only be 144,000 elect souls who will be saved and Jesus is in the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary, you know, judging the saints. And then they send their children to Seventh-day Adventist schools, which tend on average to be better than public schools. Their children then go to secular universities, moderate their Seventh-day Adventism, and then the third generation tends to assimilate so Seventh-day Adventism tends in the West to only last three generations. So Islam in the West, Orthodox Judaism in the West, Seventh-day Adventism in the West, you know, traditional Christianity in the West. Uh, over the generations, it, uh, all of these movements tend to become more assimilated, less distinctive, and, and less religious. Of, uh, of German Orthodox types. Uh, he received a doctorate from Erlangen University, as I recall. I have material, which I got from the archive there. But uh, to show you, just to give you some examples, how the Hasm Sofer really is, uh, he's pre-modern. So for instance, the Hasm Sofer says that, uh, I'll just give you some famous examples, that uh, he questions whether the results of Gentile, and that was a time when scientists were studying anatomy very seriously. He questions whether the results of scientists who are studying human anatomy, we can use them. Because after all, uh, Jewish bodies have only consumed kosher food. And we don't give our bodies uh, to be operated, uh, dissected on. So he questions whether you can use anything the non-Jewish doctors say, because uh, they're not referring to Jewish bodies. He actually, in the early 19th century, he leans towards Ptolemaic astronomy. He's, he, he acknowledges the issue is complicated, but uh, he does not reject Ptolemaic astronomy. He's not 100% certain because he knows that there are certain rabbis who also uh, lean to Copernicus, but he leaves it as an open question. He writes that Yiddish as a language was intentionally invented by medieval Jews to keep them away from the non-Jews. So, so now these type of ideas, they don't really reflect a modern uh, sensibility. I want to give you one more example. I'll end with this, which uh, something which would be well known to all. The, you know what? I'm already seeing it's 926. I'll get to you next time. Uh, and we're going to finish next time with. Okay, that's that's enough Torah. All right. We had some hate pod. We, we had some Torah. Ladies and gents, please put your hands together and please welcome to the stage the very funny Sunny Leone! Wow! Yeah, I'm here. I never in my life thought I would be doing this, by the way. <laughs> so, my name is Sunny Leone, and you all know me for something I've done in my past. <laughs> that you've all have judged me for, and that I might be a little ashamed of. Mustizade. 
I just want to get this out of the way because I know what you all are thinking. Sex, 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 <laughs> sex, sex. Chotu. <laughs> this family sticks out in my mind. She, br- she comes up to me with her baby and she goes, Photo lo, ye aapki fan hai. Take a picture, she's your fan. I mean, fan from where? I, uh, does she not know who I am? I mean, you know, all I want to do is tell this cute little baby is watch Captain America, not Naughty America. <laughs> so this one guy comes up to me and he goes, Sunny, Sunny, Sunny. What's 68 plus one? So the headline reads, Sonny Leone talking about 69 will blow your mind. <laughs> or this other guy, he's like, Sonny, Sonny, fairy tales, kaise khatam hote? Sonny Leone wants happy ending. Wait, what was that? What was that? <laughs> fairy tales, kaise khatam hote? How do fairy hote? tales end? Sonny Leone wants happy ending. She can't win. It's, I know, so creative, right? Bollywood and adult films are very different. In adult films, you know who's going to screw you. (laughs) And uh, sexuality in Bollywood is, you know, very different. Bollywood is obsessed with water. I mean, they think you just throw some water on an actress and it's sexy. (laughs) I mean, Bollywood and my subsy guy. Vegetable vendor. This Saturday, I don't know if you're aware of it, was um, was 420. And so it was just, it was a madhouse over there. It's April 20th? No, no, 420. Yeah, it was April 20th, but 420, you know 420. No, what's that? How do you not know? You've never heard of 420? Well, it's... It's a, it's a big deal. I mean, it's like it's real popular in the culture right now, and everybody's wearing 420 shirts, and you see 420, 420 bumper stickers, and everyone's talking about it. 420 is a code term used primarily in North America that refers to the consumption of cannabis and, by extension, a way to identify oneself with cannabis subculture. Observances based on the number 420 include smoking cannabis around the time 420 p.m. as well as on the date April 20th. No, what date is that? What year? Uh, this was this around 1970. No, this. Anyway, a widely discussed story says that a, a group of teenagers in San Rafael, California, used the term in connection to a here a fall 1971 plan uh, to search for an abandoned cannabis crop that they had learned about. Huh? 420 was the birthday of Austrian-born German politician and the leader of the National Socialist German Workers' Party, a fellow went by the name of Adolf Hitler. But this guy, there's a picture of him. Adolf Hitler, very compelling kind of a figure. Odd-looking duck, but there's something about his eyes. Hypnotic. His eyes are almost entirely black. Um, they, they play- he was a decorated veteran of World War I. <laughs> and he joined the war. Hold the fort. He hated Jews. 
I'm sick of these kind of characters. I think we should kill Hitler. Me and you, go suicide, kill him. Right. It's like died 50 years ago. Probably. Did he? I didn't yeah. even know he was sick. He wasn't. Well, no, that's that's fine. I wish I could find a Hitler of today and go kill him. Disavow. I'm sorry. I mean, this is Priyanka from Indian Express. You know, uh, making a reference to the first episode, I just saw it. And uh, during the interview, you said something remarkable that um, uh, a porn star has the nerves of steel to strip and to uh, to go out there and enjoy what she or he is doing. And uh, we don't really, we hardly associate enjoyment with porn. You know, we never see, we never talk about... Uh, people, uh, we always say that they might have been victims of circumstance. We never say that they might have gone into porn industry by choice. How unfair do you feel that we categorize porn stars either as villains or vamps or people who are victim of circumstance? Well, I think that for a country that has one of the largest consuming, um, you know, adult people who consume this material, I think it's really really odd that um, people would think that way but I think what what people are missing is it's a very personal choice we don't we don't go hey guys guess what I did this morning um, that doesn't happen right uh, why is it important whether or not it's a personal choice I mean, uh, how is that significant like it, it was my personal choice to roll around in dog poo this morning, but it was my personal choice, guys. Don't judge me. Happen ever. We don't talk about those things. It's a very personal thing for most people. Very so personal. I think that this is maybe your view or maybe the view of a very small percentage of people, um, but not the view of the mass majority of the entire world. Otherwise, it would be an industry that would be down the tubes and not flourishing. Greetings. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, Sunny, the narrative regarding you has been very tricky. Uh, your performances have been banned in the past. Uh, politicians have objected. They have made a remark. Uh, there have been, every time there has been a major rape, your name has been somehow dragged into the controversy. Uh, do you often feel victimized or being targeted for who you are? I don't see myself as a victim, but a soft target, maybe. Um, I believe that people... Okay, from one uh, and lawyers and environmental studies and all the other things that hold up construction or destruction of something. Anyway, there was no rush. There was no rush. And we have aerial photographs showing Treblinka being dismantled. So no, it was not pristine. The Nazis made an effort to erase Treblinka. Again, we have the aerial photographs showing the erasure process. Foundation is removed. Buildings removed. And so I don't want to talk to these guys anymore. I'm not, they're not even worthy of pitching me a question. These are people who don't read history books, don't know history, don't know dates, don't know anything. I had a guy, it's another thing that really compelled me to say, I'm not talking to the wackos anymore. The guy who, who came onto a thread, a Twitter thread with me and uh, claimed that at no, at no time were more than 300,000 Jews under Nazi uh, occupation. So I was like playing along with these imbeciles because I, I want to, just want to trap them. So I said, oh really, that's fascinating. Uh, what's, what's your proof? And he sends me a page from, Jewish population demographic uh, uh, book, and um, it shows a number of number of Jews in Europe, number of Jews under Nazi control, roughly three hundred thousand. And he says, "Aha, see, see." And I, I, I look at the date of this particular demographic study. 
and it was released in May of 1941. I said, uh, does this mean anything to you, Feller, that you're relying on a study uh, of uh, Nazi territory from May of 1941? No. I said, really? It, it, so the, the date, May 1941, and then what would happen one month later, you have no idea? No. See, never read a history book. Has no idea uh, what would happen right after May 1941 that would change the face of Europe. These people, again, they're beneath me. They're just far too beneath me for me to acknowledge them, and so I'm just not going to do that again. Uh, pyramid. Okay, the, again, a long one. I, I do try to, you know, you, you guys who want to pontificate, you want to go on for 300 words. I'm not going to read all of that. Try, try to be brief. To try to condense, Pyramid is asking, why is Hitler such a bad guy when other equally murderous or even more murderous people, Stalin, Mao, Genghis Khan, he, he cites Vlad the Impaler, are not considered as, as inherently evil? And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I can give the textbook revisionist answer, which is Jews control everything. Jews, Jews make their concerns your concerns. And there's some truth to that, of course. But it goes beyond that. It, it goes, first of all, it goes to the fact that... Um, no, it, it, a, hundred, a hundred million Chinamen can die. What does that really mean to us? And uh, Hop Glacian says, David Colstein is one of the funniest writers I've ever read. And uh, Josh says, I want to party with this guy. Western holocausts are just more meaningful. Is this a dwarf, a dwarf I'd like to, God forbid? To the West. Um, but also, a great number of the deaths under Stalin and under Mao uh, were due to famine or uh, people being sent to the gulags and dying there of exposure and other things. Hitler, by doing the whole premeditated murder thing, murder camps uh, thing, he made himself look far more villainous because he, he gave himself no plausible deniability. He couldn't blame it on famine like Mao. You, know, you talk to defenders of Mao and they, 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 point, out, they point out, well, most of those deaths, that's famine. When people being executed, the bullet in the back of the head, and then their families being charged for it. Now the famine. Um, if a dictator can take that way out and say, you know, a lot of that was famine. Uh, a lot of that was just, you know, those damn farmers weren't producing. I man, I tried my best to get them to produce. And then you have to go into a whole debate about collectivism and bad farming policy and now trying to rush along. And in and uh, the chat says that Sonny Leon was really saying that uh, right and wrong should be determined by the plebeian majority. She is a true Democrat. I notice that, uh, yeah, when, when you can argue facts, you argue facts. Like when you can argue with logic, you argue on the basis of logic. And uh, when, when then doesn't work, maybe you'll argue, oh, well, what, I'm, what I'm saying is, is legal. So I noticed many pornographers found moral justification in that Speaking they of Richard said, Spencer, this is the real Richard Spencer. They said that, hey, our our industry is legal, therefore it's moral. Sit here. All right. <laughs> I, I talked this guy. Hi, uh, Mr. Nasheed. How Hello, Mr. Richard. How are you, sir? How are you doing? I'm, Long time uh, no here. Well, have we ever spoken before? We yeah, you yes, Richard. We've spoken before. You've been on one of my broadcasts. If this is the real this Richard. This is the real Spencer, Richard, yes, one hundred percent. Um Yes, remember we had a a brief debate on one of my live streams a couple of years ago. Oh, okay. What were we talking about then? What were we talking about? You ran off the phone kind of quickly. Oh. So, um, yeah, I don't know what we were talking about, but it's online. You can find it online. Okay. Now, now, what's going on with you? You've been, they, they've had you in hiding. Where have you been? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've kind of went against the uh, Trump 2020 election mainly. 
Um, I don't think I'm in hiding. I'm just uh, kind of doing my own thing and uh, focusing on some other stuff at the moment, focusing on more intellectual stuff. I, I think the, um, the alt-right movement was, uh, you know, pretty intellectually bankrupt. And um, I, uh, I, I just want to be involved in things that are, you know, exciting and challenging to me and, and just, you know, tweeting about Trump and stuff just uh, bores me to tears. So I'm just focusing yeah. on other stuff. But I, I think that probably, I mean, it definitely is going to mean that I'm not in the spotlight, but that's uh, good in a way. But I, I've been enjoying the conversation, actually. I just popped in kind of on a whim. It's late over here, but um, it's a very real conversation. Right, right. Now, how do you feel about reparations, Richard? I mean, you're, you're the one who really helped start the alt-right movement. I'm like, are you, you could also be solely responsible for the alt-right movement. Um, how do you feel about reparations for foundational Black Americans? Uh, I think it's a good idea, and I, I understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 I don't, yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the um, rhetoric against reparations is, um, you know, I, I can agree with it here and there, it's, and, and so on, but I, yeah, I mean, I, I understand that a, I mean, you could call it a crime, you could call it a trauma, it took place, mm-hmm. and um, there is, you know, it's hard to put a monetary value on something like that, but um, it can be done, um, and it just has to be done specifically. I, I think it's very difficult now um, with immigration. Um, and including African immigration, it would be difficult to kind of, you know, if to, to say, are we just giving you money because you have a darker skin color or is right. this a real thing that is right. about people? That's who... why we were making it lineage based. We yeah. were making it based on people who were aggrieved here during slavery in America, people who are owed the 40 acres and a mule. Right. Yeah. So we made it very specific. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, I kind of I like the idea of. Um, what would, I don't know. It's it's paying off a uh, debt. I think that's a much more serious way of thinking about something than, um, you know, than just kind of buzz. And uh, Half Glacier says Richard Spencer and Claire Corr both are immensely aided by their speaking voices. The medium is the message. If they had Brooklyn accents, they'd both be in the proverbial gutter. Words about diversity and uh, and so on. So yeah, I, I I think it would be a better better use of uh, of resources. Now, would you say this if? If the debt were paid in a, to a substantial amount, um, is that it? Is it a one-time thing or is it kind of an ongoing thing? It, it would be in the same vein of the, the Native American situation. You know, it's kind of, if you aggrieve a group, you have to, you know, compensate them for the aggrievement. The slavery, mm-hmm. one-time thing. If we look at slavery, that was a 400-year torture endeavor. Right. So it wasn't a one-off. So there has to be a lot of repair there. To, to, to make things equitable. We have to make things equitable. I know I, when I spoke with you, I know you said you like power. You believe in winning. And you, yeah. know, you, t- you can't live in a society where you feel like you're winning over another group um, in perpetuity because you would have to pay for that militarily. You can't pay for military subjugation because not only will that create hostility, the money is going to run out. And then what are you going to do? You're going to be back at square one. So it's just best to be equitable when dealing with people. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make sense, Richard? It makes sense. I mean, to to put a little context around what I, you know, said, I, I think I, I'm sure I said something like that. Right. Um, I mean, one thing that I appreciate about you in this discussion is that it's it's serious advancement of your people. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you you understand where I'm coming from, too, when I right. when I say, you know, say something about winning. That's kind of it's a kind of a Trumpian way of basically saying that. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I think if I had suffered uh, like you all had, I would have very similar feelings. I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny cause I, I live out in the Pacific Northwest. I live in Montana, if you, as you might know. Yeah. Um, it's a different situation, um, with the American Indian or native American. 
And um, it's been, it was dealt with in a very different way. It, um, the uh, reservation system, you know, has some problems, but it, it is a continuing thing. I mean, when you, uh, when I, you know, drive through a reservation, you know, it's very apparent where I am. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but yeah, I, they got a lot. They of absolutely have a claim to a, a yeah. part of North America. Yes, they do. Well, they got a lot of land. They got a lot of casinos. So a lot of them are doing actually very well. Now, as far as a lot of stuff that's going on with your movement and a lot of movements of people, um, I would say on the far right, mm-hmm. but, but even on the left, as you know, as, as many stories have come out, the numbers in the dominant society, white society, those numbers are dwindling. And I know that's a real legitimate concern for a lot of people who are part of your movement. And I don't dismiss that. That is a legitimate concern. Yeah. What do you think should be done or what could be done to help those numbers of uh, those birth rates that's going on in your community? What what legitimate tactics do you guys have or what would you wish to have in order to assist with your genetic lineage going? Because I think people deserve to have their genetic lineages go on. I, I, I'm not a person who's like, okay, yeah, the hell with your lineage. Yeah, if you want your lineage going, there are things that can be done to, to protect that to a certain degree without systematic oppression. Right. What, what do you think would work in your eyes? Well, it's interesting because, I mean, if we, if we go back to the Trump era. If... Like, this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors, fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Those pieces of shit get ruled by people like me. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking... Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking pussy ass bitch! Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight. Until black lives mean something to this country. No. No. Until black. Black lives matter. Wow, that's very moving. We want to pay homage to the memory of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And we had actually, as fortuitous as it was, decided that our Haftarah was going to be one that we pre-recorded. And so in a moment, you're going to see the link to go find it online. And if you want to watch the traditional version of our Haftarah, you can, of course, go there rather than what we are about to do now. But what we are about to do is pay homage to a person that was a modern-day prophet. The goal of the Haftarah isn't just to add an extra section from Bible in. It is also, more than anything else, to acknowledge that there are people 2,000, 3,000 years ago who were speaking out for justice. And we are blessed to have prophets in our world today. Prophets like Martin Luther King, prophets like Gandhi, and yes, prophets like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I know many of you feel broken over her death. 
for what she stood for, for what she did. And so the best way that we can honor her memory is to use her words. And so in a moment, we are going to chant the blessing before the Haftarah, page 247. And then I'll invite you to listen. As in the traditional melody of the Haftarah, we read a few key teachings. Ruth Bader Ginsburg's own words. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, all right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking pussy ass bitch! Oh, yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight! Until black lives. Okay, sorry, let's get a little bit more here from The Richard. 2016 Trump, not the 2020 Trump. But the 2016 Trump, it was existential. And even notions like the wall, it was a kind of visual notion of we're going to protect white America effectively. Right. And I do think that's how it resonated. And, you know, actually, as, a, as someone who's a black nationalist, you know, of, of a sort, that's probably Do black lives matter to you? Um, it, do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking pussy ass bitch! Oh yeah, you wanna fucking go, Karen? Nationalist, just um, somebody who's trying to empower the black. Sure. But yeah. Um, I, I think it, it it could resonate with your community as well. Um, I but you know at the same time, even long before the Trump movement of 2016, I was relaying an important fact that is really undisputed that can't be disputed, and that is that. Um, white America is going to end regardless of a wall, regardless of a total immigration shutdown. I mean, the majority of births are to non-white mothers as of 2011. So we're well past that. And we we even have this kind of, you know, terrible situation now um, of uh, of immigration is kind of petering out. Um, You see. Okay, that's enough. Let's get some Kenneth Brown. In my video against Nick Fuentes, I brought up this point that conservatives, nationalists, right-wingers, all of whom I am opposed to politically, I'm not opposed to them personally, I don't want to destroy them or bring sadism upon them or dox them or beat them in elections because I think, uh, you know, the Democrat Party has a lot of the same ills. And not to get into that, but... I do oppose them politically, and that needs to be clear. And if people don't understand that, they need to ask why. They need to ask themselves that when they're watching my videos. So the question was asked, if you critique other people's conception of political change, what is your conception? What is the mechanism of politics? If you don't believe that political change is random or chaotic or a product of the Kali Yuga or a product of entropy or a product of lowering IQs or a product of all these different things. Like, what, what do you think? If you don't think it's demographic decline, if you don't think it's the Jews, like, what do you, what do you think? How did we get from the 1950s to the 1960s? How did we get from Obama opposing gay marriage to Trump supporting gay marriage? How do these changes happen? What are the mechanisms of politics? It's a very important question. I think it's a question we should always have in mind when we think about politics. We can't simply think about it in terms of what we want. You could sit around all day saying, I want money, I want money, I want money. But if you don't understand 
the mechanism of how to gain money, would, would listen. then you're lost. Then you're unhappy because you want something that you need, you feel deprived, you don't have it. Same thing, I want women, I want money, I want power, I want whatever you want in life. You want to feel satisfied, you want to feel happy. But if you don't understand the mechanism, then you'd be better off not wanting it at all. And if anything, the desire to know more, the desire to understand the mechanism should be taken seriously. So what is the mechanism of politics? What are the mechanisms of political dynamics? How and why do politics change? I would say the first, um, it, okay, let me, let me preface this. There's two ways. We could start from the most fundamental and work our way to the most superficial, or we could start from the most superficial and move to the most fundamental. I, in this video, I'm gonna start with the superficial. You could start with the fundamental. The reason I'm ordering this presentation in this way is because I believe that uh, if I start off by saying, well, it's ultimately religious and philosophical and spiritual, people will simply not believe me. Because even if you call yourself a traditional Catholic or a Christian or whatever, I find that these people implicitly don't believe in that. I, I find that there are a lot of people who implicitly have a Calvinist, materialist, Newtonian concept of how history works, uh, and they do not actually, they are not metaphysical, they are not spiritual, they are secular, they are materialist, and that makes sense because that's what they grew up with, and so they can change the label as a big forget you to the establishment to say, oh, I hate atheists, I hate the Antichrist, I'm a Christian now, but they still can't, they, they still view it as um, mystical or they're incredulous, about the idea that it's, you know, politics ultimately reduces to religion and philosophy. And maybe you already do believe that, and if you do, then we can get there. I just want to give a preface for the people who are having trouble getting there. So we'll start with economics. We could say that all political change is reducible to economic change. We could say that during the feudal era, if you are a lord and you own a hundred acres of land, and there are a thousand peasants, serfs, who you, in a certain sense, own them as slaves. The vast majority of people have always been some sort of slave, either a wage slave, a serf slave, some form of slavery, some form of fealty. You can call that a soft form of slavery. I think it's a spectrum. I don't think there's this hard dividing black and white line. I don't think when we abolished slavery in America as a title that we abolished the quality of slavery. So if you're a lord with a hundred acres and a thousand people, and they're farming the land, what you want is you want as many people as possible to farm that land. Now, ultimately, for every plot of land, there is a carrying capacity. At the same time, there did exist mobility. If you were a serf, and there was not enough land and too many people, you could leave. You could go somewhere else. Now, you wouldn't be free. You would still be under the fealty of whichever lord. Okay, here's some of the commentary from... Curious Gazelle, she says, Sunny Leon is cringe. Sunny needs to hire Luke Ford as her scriptwriter. Think Sunny means the highest porn consumption rate among adults in India. Sunny means right and wrong should be determined by the plebeian majority. She is a true Democrat. Is this Dilf porn a dwarf? I'd like to F. I think that was a comment aimed at David Cole Stein. Scrolling through, I believe David Colstein was in a theater production called Snowflake, Alt-Right, and the Two Jewish Dwarfs, starring Richard Spencer and Robert Reich. Thank you so much, Curious Gazelle. 
your support of me and the show. Richard Spencer is running a, I can't say that, with the help of Tariq Nasheed, Chief Saucer. Any member of the alt-right with a black woman fetish, 50% of the proceeds go to Tariq Nasheed's nonprofit foundation. Disavow or just, just uh, satire, please. Profits or profit? Come on, Luke, read my comments above David Colstein. Above, I did, I did. Is this cock a change management consultant? <laughs> this guy needs to quote Steve Bannon more directly if he wants clout. According to Bannon, we millennials are 19th century Russian serfs. Okay, I've been watching the excellent British TV show Fresh Meat. It's just, uh, wow. Boy, do they get edgy. Just want to play a few brief excerpts if I can get away with it. Happened to own the plot of land you lived on. Some peasants went into the woods and became foragers and gatherers and whatnot. Some people uh, moved into the merchant class or learned a skilled trade, etc., etc. But ultimately, if you are a feudal lord, you want to maximize the number of people on your plot of land because overpopulation in an agricultural economy is a problem which solves itself because you're not in a consumer economy. It's not like people are constantly buying. So I'm watching Fresh Meat, season one, episode seven, and these two upper-class guys are talking about how they're going to throw this amazing party, and their word for an amazing party is it'll be totally rape as opposed to a loser party, which will be totally mong. H-M-O-N-G. How do you pronounce mong? I, I got to disavow, but this is uh, British TV. Wow. 2K? What? As in, like, 2,000 pounds? Bespoke decor, we're going to get canapes. Yeah, it's going to be rape. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean... <laughs> it's going to be rape, right? This is a great party. It's going to be rape. I, I don't think they would say that on American TV. I don't think they could get away with it. Well, we're all putting in 2K for the VIP room. We're going to get bespoke decor. We're going to get canapes. Yeah, it's going to be rape. Yeah, well, I mean, that, be I mean that sounds really um, rape. It's, it's sounds just that it's a really annoying thing, basically, on Sunday. Yeah, it's got to get dad's funeral. Yeah, um, really annoying thing on on Sunday. It's my, it's my dad's funeral. But I'm sure that party is just going to be totally rape. Which is, I know, cringe. Cringe. Uh, and yeah, it's a Sunday, so all the trains are a bit screwed. So it's gonna be really hard for me to get back. So um, well, the club's cheaper on Sunday. I'm not having a go at Sundays. Like I absolutely love Sundays. Well, what if we could get you back? Really? Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, that would be immense. Totally right. You've got two k. Yeah. For shears. Okay. So this is too easy. Yeah? You put in the 2K, we raz you over there in my Subaru Impreza and get funeralized up. Probably have some tunes on. Raz funeralized. back for like nine, and you can still put in the 2K. Sweet. Sweet. Spud me up, bitches. Right, fine. Seems like quite a lot of Ks. Well, I asked Tobe to get the best, which I have done. Yeah, I mean, we want the best. I know I do. No, I, I definitely want the best. Come on, you want the best. You want a, a totally rape party, don't you? It's just a, a, a K for some rope? 
Well, that's how much it costs to hire. We're not even buying it. Buying it's 5k. It's made from Bikuna, which pisses all over Kashmir. Little money-saving idea. I am more than happy to, uh, to DJ. Thank you. And Very generous. Obviously, sling in another K. Yeah. Mm, yeah, we do need someone to headline. Yeah. And you could headline. Doing 5 a.m. Yes, headlining. 5 a.m. Wow, yeah. That'd be awesome. Okay, rape. What else, cunts? We oh, discussed wristbands. Toby, how much are wristbands? Those are. I can't find them, but they're going to be okay. One gave her for wristbands, right? <laughs> to have a totally rape party, you've got to have high-quality wristbands, right? Can't, can't just try to be, be, be cheap about this. We want to have something high-quality. Okay, that's from the uh, British TV show Fresh Meat, uh, Season 1, Episode 7. Disavow. Disavow. One day you just start using it, LGBTQ+, and anyone who asks what it means is immediately presumed to be in the out group. So it's not actually a word. Words are meant to signify meaning and communicate it to other people. No, it's not that at all. It's a litmus test. And you could fail. Oh, you don't know what LGBTQ+, means? Keep an eye on that person. Hates gays. But whatever. Don't ask questions. Karine Jean-Pierre is our first out LGBTQ plus White House press secretary. And that's all you need to know. It's a good thing. Shut up and celebrate. That's why she got the job. She's in the right group. And to the Biden administration, which thinks exclusively in terms of groups and never in terms of individuals, because individuals are messy and inconvenient, the group is all that matters. This is exactly how they pick Supreme Court justices or vice presidents or members of the Federal Reserve Board. And now the all-important press secretary gig has gone to someone on the basis of group. It's really simple. Show us your picture, and we'll tell you if you're qualified for the job. And in many ways, Karine Jean-Pierre is perfect for the job. Not only is she a member of the out LGBTQ plus community, she is also, critically, the product of a private school and an Ivy League college, and yet still oppressed somehow. She is furious at America, despite her ample privilege, and enraged by its racist systems of oppression. And she's happy to tell you about it. Here she is. When he got elected, I think people thought we were in a post-racial uh, America, and we were not. I think what we learned is that racism was very much real and still very much around. And, I, and the obstruction that he saw, the... Um, uh, just the horrible racist rhetoric of, uh, of having a black family in the White House was very clear that you felt the hate and you saw the hate. I just think that America has a, 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 whoa, 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 a big whoa, 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 race that's very that, stop real. That, stop that, stop that, Come on, yeah. stop that. They stop keep that, electing Obama that. and promoting me despite the stop fact that. I have no qualifications for the job. Lesson, it's a racist country. Now, there's a word for this kind of a clever term. It's called cry bullying, right? Stop hitting me, they say, as they punch you in the face. Why do they do it? Well, they do it because it works. You whine about racism and you get into the best schools, you get promoted, and eventually you run the federal government. And your presence atop the food chain 
is nothing if not evidence that the country is still racist. It has to be, or you can't justify your job. Kind of an amazing scam people like Corinne Jean-Pierre have going. She's perfected it. She used to work for MSNBC. She knows the script cold. Here she is in 2020 yelling some more about racism. Now, if you imagine that COVID came from a lab in Wuhan, which by the way is true, then according to Corinne Jean-Pierre, you're not a person trying to get to the truth. No. Can you guess what you are? You're a racist. The easy pivot is race, is, mm-hmm. is ethnicity. Yeah. To say it's a foreign virus. I've noticed wow, people wow, 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 tweeting wow, 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 Chinese coronavirus. Wow, 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 wow. That's uh, what Tucker Carlson said. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Fox News. Fox News was racist before coronavirus. They are racist. Ruffy out in the doubt. Wow. Who sent you that? JP. Wow, wow. I mean, it's Rafael Nadal's backhand. Nadal's backhand, if he was in the final of Wankers. If he was in the final of the Wankers Wimbledon. Not going to be able to look at your strawberries and cream after this. Whoa, he said to keep it on the down low, but you can't share this. It's a shizzle. Who is this freak? But that's... That's actually me... Okay. TV show Fresh Meat, season seven. Episode season one, episode seven. It's probably the noblest thing anyone's ever done in relation to wanking in the entire history of wanking. Thank you. I mean, this is the guy. The one. The noblest thing you've done in the history of wanking. The wonderful wizard of wank. The full wizard of wank. <laughs> Look, so he wanks. So what? Hey, Rafa, who's this? Your ball boy. Just, just leave him alone. Ah, oh, come on, man. Great stuff. Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter to you? Do black lives matter, right, Karen? Fucking white piece of shit, you little fucking pussy ass bitch! Oh, yeah? You wanna fucking go, Karen? No! No! Until black lives matter! Until black lives matter, no life matters! That is not our fight. Until black lives mean something to this country. No. No. Until black. Black lives matter. Okay, that's it. Bye bye. Talk to you later.